The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everyone. I'm Vince Rocco, your host. You are listening to Good Morning New York. It is Tuesday, February 7th on a very rainy New York uh, morning. I'd like to welcome our listeners from the United States and around the world. If you want to call into the program, you can call in at 866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. We'd love to hear from you. We have a very interesting show today. We are going to talk about um, all things attorney, all things legal, all things transactions. So buyers in New York City confront a series of choices Buy a co-op, buy a condo, a high-rise, a walk-up, a second bathroom, or just steps from the subway. But there seems to be a consensus on at least one decision, whether to hire a real estate attorney. In New York, unlike most places in the United States, it is customary for buyers to seek the representation of a lawyer throughout the purchasing process. Although this is not a legal requirement, some longtime real estate agents say they have never witnessed a a deal completed without a buyer's having an attorney on hand. I know I have not. Randy Plebley is our uh, special guest today. She is general counsel to Kingsland Murphy, which specializes in the representation of investors and developers in the acquisition and disposition of multifamily and commercial properties in the greater New York area and beyond. In the past few years, the business has evolved to include the representation of purchasers and sellers of single-family homes, condos, and co-ops. In a past life, she worked as a broadcast journalist in Texas. There, There you have it and South Dakota before returning to New York to attend Brooklyn Law School. A veteran of the New York City Corporation Counsel's Office, Randy's prior work also included tax appeals and bankruptcy work in New Jersey. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Um, And thank you for being here today. So we have a big show today. We're going to get right to it. With me here at the panel, uh, Matthew Cohen from uh, Core Real Real Estate, Phil Horrigan from LeaseBreak.com, Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, and special guest panelist today, Sid Whalen, also from Core Real Estate. Let's get to it. Now, Randy and I were discussing this a couple of weeks ago. There are 10 things, probably 15 things, that real estate lawyers wish that brokers knew. We all have gone through, here in this room anyway, very experienced agents have gone through many, many, many transactions. But, you know, from a lawyer-broker perspective, there's always something, or a broker-lawyer perspective, there's always something that can be done better. So let's get right at it. Number one, they wish attorneys wish that brokers knew that calling on a daily basis to ask if the contract is signed or if we're ready to close doesn't make either of those events happen any faster. And I know my part, my business partner <coughs> is one of those, where's mm. the contract? Is it signed? Mm. Let me call the attorney. Chill out. I say all the time. What is the real problem with that, Randy? The real problem is that attorneys are sometimes going back and forth, sometimes for weeks, you hope only for a few days, 
um, and talking about things that maybe haven't been brought up yet between the parties. So we're talking about um, exclusions and inclusions for personal property. Uh, we're talking about um, post-occupancy agreements sometimes. So those things have to be ironed out before a contract is signed. And yes, sometimes um, once the ink is wet or barely after the ink is wet, we start getting phone calls from brokers saying, <clears throat> can we set up a closing date? <laughs> but 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 let me ask you something. Let's peel this back just a little bit. And, and guys, please chime in and, and feel uh, comfortable doing so. I, I I sometimes wonder myself what the real delay is in a, in a contract signing. Yes, we have to make sure that we set up our clients properly, the inclusions, the exclusions, all of that stuff. But we also sometimes have time limits on you know when a client needs to sign by, etc. So what what really is the the major holdup uh, in 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 a lack of signing sometimes? Because I'm always perplexed, you know, it's like it should have been signed two days ago. It's not yet. I can't get any response. I really don't know. My buyer is driving me crazy or my seller is driving me crazy. What really is the holdup behind signing that contract? I think maybe, you know, uh, incorrectly, it should be easy, right? Well, one thing you may not be aware of is that sometimes when the clients speak to the attorneys, they tell the attorneys things that they have not previously disclosed. So they may be talking about um, uh, challenges that they have in financing, or they may be saying, um, I didn't really want to agree to this, but I felt pressured to, and now I've changed my mind. And now it's between the attorneys to battle it out. And it may seem like the attorneys are... Um, trying to kill the deal, so to speak. We, we hear that from brokers a lot. Don't try to, don't kill the deal. Um, but we're not, you know, we're not. We're trying to, re, you know, advocate for our clients in the way that they've asked us to. I also find that a lot of times the contract is the easiest part between attorneys and that gets done and, you know, finalized pretty quickly. But what takes the most amount of time, in my opinion, is the buyer's attorney doing his due diligence and the management yes. company cooperating with him on doing the minutes, well, coming in and reading those, yes. you know, doing the financials if they want to do, you know, depending on the client, if they want to do a more detailed questionnaire and usually management companies have a certain amount of days in order to get that back to them. I That's find that that right. takes the most time. Yeah. Well, the managing agent situation is always uh, a cog in the wheel. In my I, opinion, I find that from a broker's perspective, I find it always helpful to, to try to learn where is the contract stopping? Like where, where is it in the process? Because sometimes you hear, uh, one side or the other will say, either the buyer or the seller will say, or even the attorneys will say, well, we're working on it, you know? And that sometimes could be a little frustrating for a broker to hear. So I, and not every day, of course, but I do think it's helpful for the broker to find out, well, where is it right now? Um, did you send comments back? Are they waiting? Because then if we know where it is in the process, we could put pressure on the other broker. If we know that the other side is waiting for comments. So sometimes it is helpful to have a little bit more information as a broker, just so you could help get, you know, move things along. Um, sometimes people don't know where things are sitting. It's sitting on the sales attorney's desk and we don't even know that, you know, for example. I also think that this is where we always talk about having a team of people that you work with. It comes into play because I know that, you know, Randy and I were just talking about how I definitely have my go-to attorney and his team. And instead of annoying them on an hourly basis with calls, we actually text and, you know, Gchat and Facebook message just to give updates because you want to make sure to your client that you're all on the same page. You don't want one person saying, oh, we're still waiting on this. And then the attorney saying, oh, but everything's done. And then you're thinking, why is my broker not in the loop? So I think it's good for everyone to be on the same page. Hence, kind of like a team group atmosphere. Well, you know, I love that word team. Uh, Randy, you mentioned before, uh, and this is number two, uh, inclusions and exclusions. 
explain to the audience, listening audience, why this is so important, especially here in New York City in Manhattan, because, you know, as we talk about on this program all the time, transactions, deals, uh, as we call them in real estate, outside of uh, New York City, uh, completely different than here. So where do we get hung up uh, when we're not paying attention to inclusions and exclusions in a contract based on the seller to the buyer, et cetera? Right. Well, some people have obviously decorated their apartments fabulously here in New York. Well, and I think they have. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there are things that are very important to sellers to bring with them. Um, and sometimes those exclusions can create issues um, for a buyer who expects that certain things are going to be left behind. So we always say, we, we call fixtures things that that. Um, almost certainly will have to be left behind. Um, but that leaves everything else, you know, up for grabs, essentially. Explain, explain though, what fixtures are. So a, a fixture would be something um, that is affixed to the apartment in some way. So um, a, a light, for instance, would be a fixture. However, a seller does have the option to take a light that they are particularly in love with and replace it with something that would be more generic or replace less expensive. That, that's the key, correct? Exactly. It should be spelled out in the contract. But exactly. I mean, it happens to me when Lisa and I bought our first apartment, their apartment, so they make a big deal out of it. But that we learned the hard way. That was before I was a real estate agent. That, um, you know that you were gonna. So it, light fixtures are the biggest one. I think that's right. happened to all of us. It certainly has happened to me uh, early on, and that actually happened mm-hmm. last year. You know, sometimes you just forget, uh, or the seller changes their mind, and it becomes a major to do. Um, in addition, though, in the rest of the country, appliances, washer dryers, well, that's yeah. refrigerators, things that are not super built in, like a dishwasher, are not always included. And when I have out of town people purchasing in Manhattan, they're always asking about that. And I think that's also included in in fixtures. It's so funny because I was selling uh, a listing of mine last year and someone came in from the suburbs and actually asked me, does the refrigerator and the stove stay? Yes, it's very common. I've never had that question before because as you just said, in the suburbs, it's, you know, you either have it or you don't or they take it or they don't. But if in you, New York if City, you've got a French buyer. This is definitely going to come up because in France, correct. None of that that stuff is actually out. It's gone. Uh, European. It'd that's be right. very unusual for any of. Well, they were there. from uh, Switzerland, so they were not used to the fact that the, the appliances stay. And then after this lengthy conversation, he turns around and says to me, "Well, I'll replace them anyway because they're ugly." Wanna? <laughs> 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 I mean, because of course you get all kinds, but this is the the response. I just burst out laughing. <laughs> what are you supposed to say to that, right? One uh, one thing that's interesting, maybe Randy could shed some light on this. And something newer is these the mounts for a TV, because they're uh, technically uh, I guess they're fixtures because they're fixed to the wall. But the problem is they leave huge holes often. So I don't know. Is there a ruling on this, or is there well, sort of like a general guideline? I mean, my feeling about that is if you want to make sure that something is staying, you ask for it to stay in the contract. If you want to make sure <clears throat> that when things are removed, there are no holes. Usually the criteria is bigger than the size of a quarter left behind. Then you put that in the contract too, that they have to fix the wall if there's anything larger than the size of a quarter. So Let's talk about the deal sheet because everything originates with the deal sheet and it's vital to get the information on that deal sheet correct. And I know all these things that we've talked about, inclusions, exclusions, you know, whatever, has to be represented on the deal sheet. Why is this important? Um. There have been more than one uh, time or instance where you've got to a closing and there was something on the deal sheet that was incorrect that somehow made its way into the contract. 
and nobody catches it until you're at the closing and suddenly it becomes an issue. So for instance, the maintenance, the the uh, cost of the maintenance is off or the cost of the assessment is off. Um, even if it's just a few dollars, people All are very the time. anxious. All the time. Yes, and you're mm. anxious at a closing. This might be the biggest investment of your life and suddenly you're being asked to sign off on something that isn't what you expected in one way or another. And now you have a buyer, a buyer who could potentially be threatening to walk away from the closing because they feel that they've been deceived in some way. And then a seller having to offer a concession in order to appease them and, and make sure that the transaction gets completed. Yeah, I, and, I, and I'm sure everyone at this table today can, can attest to how often a deal gets started incorrectly because the deal sheet is not correct. Mm-hmm. And you know, I managed agents for four plus years just recently before I um, dropped that and became just a regular agent. But how many times I'd watch them do four and five attempts at a deal sheet to the point where my hair was falling out and it's not my deal. And I'd say, this is not so difficult. I mean, what is so difficult about putting a deal sheet together? Because if you don't do that correctly, the deal goes sideways and it will go sideways all the time. Simple things like clients' names and addresses, like we were talking about it before the show started. Simple things like a middle initial. Exactly. The, the because answer, that feeds the contract. Exactly. The answer is that deal sheets are very easy. Except last week when I sent one out, and the day of, I found out that the managing agent was on maternity leave, like left for maternity leave, and I well, made the mistake. Well, <laughs> but other than I, I agree with Randy. I think that the biggest thing that people have issues with are the common charges or maintenance or monthlies. Just call it monthlies because I think that's why on the sales side for me, I don't know, I, I'm sure you guys do the same thing, but I, the day that a deal sheet actually, I send a deal sheet out for an apartment I'm selling, I always double or triple check what the current maintenance is because it obviously can change, you know, especially when you're going over a year mark. So I like to just be extremely precise because people get very, very, they almost feel like it's being hidden from them. Or if they go to the closing table or they're about to sign a contract and it's different than what they thought, you know, they're like, someone's out to get me or, you know, this is a hundred dollars more than I thought I was going to spend. Like that's a big deal to people. All right. We have to leave it there. You are listening to good morning, New York on the voice America variety channel. We will be right back. Don't go away. Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. I was recently out with a client who had just bought an apartment for me. And I asked, why, after all these years, have you stayed so loyal? Why me? And he said, you've been honest with me from day one, and when you say you're going to do something, you do it. At that moment, it occurred to me how important integrity is in this business. It's not just closing the sale. It's about earning people's trust. I'm Adrian Noriega with CORE, and this is what I do. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back. We're talking to Randy Plevy. She is counsel at General Counsel at Kingsland Murphy. We're here with Sid Whalen from Core Real Estate, Perul Bronbat from Compass, Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate, Phil Horrigan, LeaseBreak.com, and Deborah Hoppin from Town Residential. Boy, that's a mouthful today. We haven't had six people here in a long time. Moving on, number four, attorneys wish that brokers knew not to give legal advice. You know, again, when I was managing, I can't tell you how many conversations per day I would have with my agents because they'd come into me and run by a scenario and I'd say, I can't believe you said that to your clients. (laughs) And we'll leave it at that. Was it the same guy who couldn't get the deal sheet right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Tell us why this is important, Randy. Well, I I mean, the the best example of this um, for me was a broker who told a client of mine that they should be able to do back-to-back 1031 closings uh, with a property because it's very simple and they've done it before. <laughs> so touche on a ten thirty one. Yeah, okay. last week from someone else, and everybody was screaming. Yeah, so Not I mean, so this is so. Then that's up to the attorney essentially to you know bring the client back to reality and say no, actually that's not something that we can do. Um, and you should always talk to your attorney about things like that before you um agree to do to enter into a transaction. You know that would that would include something as complicated as that. So yeah, I mean we um essentially um ask you guys to handle the things that you're better at, which, you know, essentially are taking care of the uh, party's needs and leading up to the contract. Like we uh, talking about a team, right? So asking you to play interference um, when clients are upset about things or they have specific questions. About and this is basically interference in business terms. Exactly. Exactly <clears throat> right. So brokers are, what are brokers great at, right? Brokers are great at calming people down, explaining the process to them, asking them to collect due diligence materials ahead of time, like stock certificates um, and uh, deeds occasionally. Um, and then letting us essentially... Um, um, work out the the finer points of how the transaction is actually going to take place. It's a team effort, and it's right. like I, I used. First of all, I learned it as early on mm-hmm. as an, as an agent. You know, you don't dispense legal advice, and you don't dispense financial advice. Mm-hmm. You work the business terms. You work the deals as a broker. That's the point of having a team. And if you work with people all the time, your team is solid. Whether it's your attorney that you refer, your banker that you refer, everybody has a role. And if everybody lets everybody do their role, then things work Can out. Can I make one point on that, Much Vince? well, absolutely. I was just going to say, so totally agree. I think you have to let the attorney do the legal stuff. And then the flip of the coin also works because sometimes you'll have an attorney that may suggest, for example, to the client, well, maybe we could ask for a price concession, you know? And I always oh think, and I always think that you, you just want to make sure you're working with the attorney. So you don't want to, just like a broker doesn't want to give legal advice, the attorney shouldn't give quote-unquote, broker-type deal advice. So they should just be working together. Like, it would be helpful if the attorney said, uh, all together on a conference call, hey, listen, we're thinking of doing this. How would that affect the deal? And you kind of work together as a team because ultimately we just want to do the best for the client. That's the most important Most, if not all, of the attorneys that I have worked with through the 15 years I'm in this business know their place. In fact, they will tell their clients or tell the broker, this is a business thing, go talk to Vince. Or this is a business thing, go talk to the client, Vince, you know, whatever. Uh, But... 
sometimes you know the the, uh, the agent who's a little uh, you know ahead of themselves want to get involved in everything because they think they're going to make the deal move faster, and in fact it doesn't. It stalls the deal and it sets it back several steps. And Randy can you know mm-hmm. attest to that. You say um, brokers wish uh, they wish brokers would never try to start a deal with a non-binding letter of intent or an LOI. Now, my question to you is, I would 100% agree with that. But my question to you is, in new developments, sometimes, and I haven't seen it in a while, when when developments first start, uh, they issue LOIs. Now, I don't know how that translates anymore into the start of the business or the legal transaction, but LOIs in some cases still do exist. Can you define it first for us? Letter just, of intent. Yeah, no, could you define exactly what that what that is? So depending on who's issuing it, and uh, when I see them, I normally would see them coming from a buyer to a seller. And I've seen brokers um, prepare letters of intent from buyers, and essentially it's an offer. And they call it a non-binding LOI because it's not a contract, but essentially the offer says, here's what I'm willing to pay, here are the terms that I, I expect, I'm signing it, and I expect the seller to sign it as well, and then we can move forward and put a contract together. Very dangerous for a seller to do something like that, because even though it may say non-binding in five different places on there, that doesn't mean it's not. <laughs> so the ter- what what ma- what creates a contract is defined by law, and you know there you know we can get into that on another show. But essentially, you may be putting enough terms in that LOI to create a contract. Mm-hmm. Bill, years ago in New Development, I, the the Harrison uh, up here mm-hmm. on um, the west side, I, I, it comes to mind. Developers were anxious to get a bunch of sales on paper before they actually opened the sales office, or before they actually went to market. So they went out to a couple of brokerage houses and said, you know, we've got 25 units. Let's put them under LOI, letter of intent. They're not binding contracts, as Randy said. They're not oh. contracts at all. But it's a way for the developer to say, hey, we're going to market with 25 people who are interested or who will pull the trigger in further documentation mm-hmm. once we are open officially, mm-hmm. and we can offer. A lot of times, it's done before the the attorney general approves the offering plan. Right. So wow. typically, before the offering plan is approved, you can't sell. Right. right. In general, so LOI will get you to the point where, even though he's waiting for his AG um, signature, uh, he knows he's got twenty five thirty, no matter what the number is, under, you know. And he's, and he's uh, probably showing that to his lender. Absolutely. That's the reason. Yeah. On, a, on a general basis, though, I mean, I'd love to get, you know, confirmation from Randy. But I personally find in my experience that LOIs are more of a commercial thing these days. I, I find that it's definitely, it's like a shorter version of a deal sheet in the residential side. And on the commercial side, like developers, I find that I work with make LOIs. And, you know, we can make offers, for example, on the residential side in an email, like with supporting documents, whereas, you know, you can really, on the commercial side, make an offer of an (laughs) LOI as long as you have a proof of funds. So I don't think it's a term that's used as much in residential for the listeners out there. I agree with that. I need help on this one. I wasn't quite sure about this one. So brokers wish, I'm sorry, uh, attorneys wish that brokers would not provide a brokerage agreement that would require any payment from the seller unless and until the home is sold. I don't know who would I've seen either. a number of really? uh, commission uh, yes, commi- commission agreements. What am I doing wrong, I'll explain it to you. The seller would give a commission to the agent. Exactly, exactly right. So in other words, the seller signs... 
the meeting of the mind. So the seller signs an agreement with the broker that says, if you bring me a buyer who is ready, willing, and able to close on my terms, and for some reason I refuse to do so, I still have to pay you a commission. And I've seen a number of agreements. Well, I think that's a super strong way of the willful default clause, which is like, if we're in contract and you willfully default, you owe us our commission. Correct. It's it's an offshoot of that. Wait, wait. That's in all of our listing agreements because I've seen them all. No, it is. But it is. Well, no, but so well, it is. But I don't. I haven't in fifteen years seen that happen, uh, and neither have I in twenty years. Never. I mean, yeah. I haven't. The way my so my understanding of the law, and I'm not an attorney, so please, Randy, jump in here, is that if there was no exclusive agreement, in other words, if you as a buyer just took someone to an apartment, and maybe there were two brokers, and maybe there weren't, New York State law kicks in, which is if there's a meeting of the mind, mm-hmm. then commissions do have to be trans- happening, right? Exchange. However, the exclusive agreement overrides that, right? And the exclusive agreement, and Randy's shaking her head to make sure that I'm not speaking out of turn here. The exclusive agreement overrides that and says, usually most exclusive agreements say you have to close in order to get paid. Mm-hmm. Is that... Um, yes, but I've also seen exclusive agreements that said, um, we don't have to close in order for me to get paid. So that's um, interesting. I, again, I've not seen personally seen that happen in my, there's a lot of litigation litigation revolving up because the truth is as, as you pointed out, you actually don't even need to have a signed contract as a broker in order to get your commission. It's the procuring cause in in New York state. If you're, if you're the procuring cause, which is hard to say, you get your commission under real property law. I've had, um, I say, 25% 25% of sellers run the exclusive agreement by their attorney before signing it. And we get a few comments back and, and usually, you know, it, it's pretty simple to resolve that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so if I get one, for instance, I always put a line through anything that says, um, you know, you will get paid if for some reason we don't close. Mm-hmm. I, I always take that out. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on. So attorneys wish brokers knew that it is unethical to require their client to use their attorney because it will go faster. Of course, it's expected and encouraged that a broker will recommend an attorney just like they recommend a finance person. But some brokers push that encouragement a little too far, resulting in potential conflict of interest for the attorney. Right. So if you have a relationship with a broker and that broker is requiring their clients to use this particular attorney, that attorney um, may or may not be representing the best interests of the of their client because mm-hmm. they're really thinking about this broker who's referred them this business, mm-hmm. who's probably going to keep referring them business and making sure that that broker gets paid. Mm-hmm. So does it happen a lot? I don't think so. And obviously no one at this table would ever do something like that. And yes, as you said, it's expected that you would recommend someone from your team, but you can't require it and you may wind up running into a situation one day where you've um, required or someone has required their client to use an attorney and they say, no, that's okay. I'm, I'm going to use my cousin Hal. And then cousin Hal reports that broker to the ethics committee because they were trying to do something untoward. It's a fine line. And I think all of us here at this table will recommend attorneys that we've worked with before. And I know how I work. I've got a couple of them and, and I know who's best for whom in recommendations. And sometimes they come back and say, no, I have my own and that's okay. I mean, we will try and vet them to make sure that they don't work in Albany or they don't work on Long Island <laughs> or in New Jersey, they're New York City co-op and condo attorneys, but sometimes we get our way and sometimes we don't. And that's perfectly fine as long as I'm comfortable knowing that uh, they're going to get the deal done. also in this town, um, you know, I feel like we all, those of us who've been around, I mean, it's like there's a certain list of attorneys that we all regularly use. Like we all. No, there's not. I mean, I feel like most, I would say 80 to 90% of attorneys I always know. I always know 80 to 90% of my deals. You know, but, but. 
I, I find that's that's very presumptuous. No, no, I'm because true. I'm not saying that it's a hundred percent. No, no, but I've I've never. I have to tell you, every other deal is always either our people using an attorney or the other side. I've never heard of the person. Mm-hmm. Really, it's every other deal. I just meant the and ones we recommend. So the the attorneys that we're recommending are ones that have such like sort of our sellers, our or buyers. Yeah, yeah. Sellers. Like when I'm recommending an attorney, the attorneys mm-hmm. that I'm recommending are so well known, well established. They certainly don't need my seven deals a year to for their business to run. You so know I, I, mean? I like, misunderstood because perfect. you made it sound like there's there's a whole group that we all no, recommend. No, We've no, all no, heard no, of. no, no. What I'm and, saying is, generally <laughs> speaking, the attorneys we're recommending aren't the ones who are relying on our you know, five or 15 deals that yes. we could send them in a year, they're really well established and really know All what right, we have a minute to go, so I want to get to the last one. <laughs> uh, attorneys wish that brokers know that no, you don't need a copy of the contract for your company file. I'm going to disagree <laughs> with that one. Yeah, Maybe me you too. can enlighten me on this one. Well, I'll tell <laughs> we you won't why. get paid if we don't have we it. We won't get paid unless we have it. Uh, our companies, and I've worked for uh, three companies in real that. estate since I'm in this business, and you have to attach it to your paperwork at the end of the deal, okay. with the deal sheet, we need the deal sheet, okay. the contract, and a couple of other things. But to prove that at there the is no end, funny business with the commission. And the, correct. It, okay, yeah. but at the, the end of price. the deal, because I at the end of the I deal. get calls and emails from brokers constantly, I need a copy of a fully executed contract. This is, you know, a couple of weeks into the deal. I say, you will get it at the closing table. No, we need it no, for the board I package, need it too. now. Well, no. but, the, oh, okay. Inside Inside the mortgage, mortgage, and the mortgage package. package. Yeah. But, you, mortgage right. package. but you can get it from the client. And not um, the attorney, because the attorney is essentially a confidential agent right. of the client, and turning well, over a, a contract yeah. is really not appropriate. That's, from that, the that, that's a perfect yeah. point. However, it's how, it's how we <laughs> try to it. get stuff like a contract from a client. You will be waiting forever, and yeah. even when you tell them it needs to be included in the board package, or I need it for X, Y, and Z, they will oftentimes say to me, "Can't you just call my attorney?" Yes. Well, is it okay if they, if they send an email authorizing, in, if they if yes. the client sends you an email right. yeah. authorizing? hundred percent. You know what's interesting, though, is that I would be, I would say on most of my deals, the attorney sends the con- signed contract, the executed contract to me, yes. to my client, yes, everybody it. at the same time. Yeah. Did with the deal. Right, that is how it's we, done. We are out of time. We have to go to break. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back, and we're going to talk about Harlem and a whole bunch of other hot topics coming back. Don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. 
live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll free in North America at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back, and Randy Plevy, General Counsel at Kingsland Murphy, is going to stick around with us for the rest of the show. Thank you. Thank you. We have special guest panelists today, Sid Whalen from Core Real Estate, Perul Ronbat from Compass, Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate, Phil Horrigan from LeaseBreak.com, and Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential. So, Randy, we, we had to end that segment a little too prematurely, but you wanted to complete your thought on something. Go ahead. Well, quickly, I wanted to say that this list did result from a little bit of a gripe session that I was having with some <laughs> other colleagues. But, gripe session, wow. But I love it, it. it ended with us acknowledging that there is no way that we could do this business right. without the brokers, and, and we, we particularly brokers like you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> we, we, we understand that. As I said during the break, you know, I've, I've been in this business 15 years. I've dealt with everybody you can imagine. And for the most part, we I feel the same way. You can't get the deal done without having, you know, a smart, astute attorney on the other side of the deal because this is how we do it in New York City. And there were things that we're not qualified or able under license law to do, and that's legal stuff. So when I have no interest in that or in financial stuff. So I like being the um the broker. And Ooh, actually the, guy who does the, the amount, of, amount of gratitude I have for the attorney at uh, the closing so table when somebody's oh, haggling absolutely. over you know the <clears> one electrical the one much. electrical socket that did not seem to be working, you know. So yeah. When they plug Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. I think real estate attorneys are amazing. So, <laughs> yes, so thank you. All right, anyway, yes. we're gonna move on. We're gonna talk about Harlem, the home of the Harlem Renaissance and the first black woman elected to Congress will honor, <clears throat> remember, and examine Black History Month this month of February. Yes, great honor. There's a packet a packet sched packed schedule of events including lectures, readings, exhibitions, and dance and music performances across New York City. What to to Sid and Matt who do a lot of stuff in Harlem, but to anybody actually, what is what is Harlem like during this month? I mean, it's always, in my opinion, a warm and comfortable and and wonderful place to be. But during this month, what what makes it stand out even more, and why? Well, you know, I think you touched on something about the warmth. I mean, every month in Harlem is Black History Month. Uh, you know, I've lived there for fourteen years, so. I can say that with full confidence. But you, you look for cultural events to be ramped up and more focused in this month. So, you know, I was looking, checking things out for, you know, to, to help listeners with this. And, you know, if you go to like afropunk.com, they've got some really cool and edgy. Um, Wait a minute. Uh, afropunk.com? No, not punked out. Afropunk.com. <laughs> they've got some really cool um, programs this month. And we're already one week into February. You haven't missed Afropunk's shows yet so so go to their website i want to go dancing let's go uh, you probably will uh, and they're, they're, me. you probably can maddie and i'll go they're, they're really, you know they do great programs i mean they had they had stuff in prospect park last year that was really amazing i mean they're they're very broad-minded in what it means to be you know african diaspora arts so they're really really cool um dna info has a bunch you can they'll bring you the usual info, yes. suspects like the schomburg center and and the apollo theater as well as some smaller uh, venues that you might not have heard of, and Riverside Church has a, um, a an art exhibit that's running from the 16th to the 18th, so that would be worth checking out as well. All right. So you said at the at the start of your talk that that you're living in Harlem 14 years. 
what is um, what is the current state of the Harlan market right now? I mean, it's continued with its resurgence and its gentrification or whatever other words you want to use, and it's really become quite the place to be. What is the market like today compared to, you know, Manhattan proper or anywhere? It's pretty consistent with the rest of Manhattan. It's extremely hot. I, you know, I've had, uh, even even with rentals in the fall, they were going pretty well too. But the, the condos that I was selling, having multiple offers, things selling immediately. I had one that was in bad shape sell off market. I never even had, to, I couldn't take photos. It was in such bad shape and I sold it immediately. Without you know what's even amazing about Harlem too is just that people who aren't familiar with New York City or specifically Harlem, it's so beautiful. I mean, there are these just old, beautiful, gorgeous brownstones and tree-lined streets. I mean, Low-rise I love buildings. I love Harlem. I've only, you know, Sid and I talk about this all the time, um, just about Harlem and, and everything about it. But I've, I've only lived there for four months, but I've worked there for years. And I love it for so many different reasons, but I would compare the market in Harlem very much to the community uh, status in Harlem right now. I think that the community status is just very proud. You know, I have a lot of clients who, when we're going around the city looking at apartments, they'll go to an area like 14th Street downtown and they'll say, I just love the energy here. Like there's something about the it's energy on 14th Street. And when I have those same clients who go to 125th, they say there's such an energy from the people. It's just a very prideful energy. And how that compares to the market is that I think the market's very strong. I yeah, think that that's, people, sorry. Yeah, I agree. And yeah. that's one of the sad things about Black History Month being in February, because when you ask, what does it feel like? Like I if know. you're in Harlem in the summer, that's when you know what I it feels know. like. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. out. I mean, I was saying yeah. like you could come by in the summer on Bradhurst Avenue and see me hanging out with the guys in the back with the barbecue and mm-hmm. the cards and just having a good time. And that's and not only really that, but like guitar. right on 110th and 5th <laughs> Avenue, um, Right, that that little circle right there. They actually have like jazz, like free jazz bands playing there a couple of times in the summer. I mean, it's just not only that, but when I was selling twelve eighty fifth, when I was going there, I would say probably three times a week. Uh, there was like a two week period where I hadn't walked from the subway to the building, and I walk out, and people who said hello to me on my way from the subway to the building go. They looked at me and they're like, "Where have you been?" And I was like, "Wow!" Like, I mean, I actually felt genuinely safe, and like people knew me and knew my patterns, and that if I was missing, that they would actually pick up on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a neighborhood. Like, what I love about Harlem is, and I think everyone always agrees with this, is that being from New York myself and and living on the Upper West for so long. I like that New York definitely has a reputation for people not being the friendliest, not to say it in a negative way, but everyone's into their own thing. Everyone's focused focused on themselves. They're doing what they need to do. And people take that sometimes as a, you know, either rude or like, just don't want to talk to you attitude. In Harlem, I always find that everyone talks to each other Mm -hmm. and it's a totally different city. small town in a big city. Right. Like whenever I go to restaurants like Lido or, um, you know, corner social or places up in Harlem. I swear to you, every time the tables next to me, we always get into a conversation, no matter Absolutely. what. It is. That's interesting too, because a lot of those businesses, the uh, the majority of them, the new businesses, the 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 entrepreneurs who started them are are, are neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, and I remember years ago working in Tribeca, talking to Junior Pont, and he was like. I can't afford to live here. <laughs> you know, that's not true with the Harlem restaurateur. They're mm-hmm. they're there. They're they started this business because they they want to do something for their neighbors. They saw the neighbors like I don't have any Italian food, and they make it happen. Are there any particular areas 
in Harlem that are hotter than others? And then I want to talk about your new development there and tell us where it is actually. I, yeah, no, I mean, Matt, go ahead with the hot issue because I wanted to say it depends (laughs) on how you define hot, but let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think that um, when I explain Harlem to people, I definitely explain the areas. And I think it's very important to not only justify Central, West, and East Harlem, but also the differences between the three, as well as. I, I mean, Sid, you tell me, but I think Harlem is very much about pockets. I think that it's very different from block to block. And it changes a lot. Yeah, it changes a lot, both good and bad. I actually think it reminds me of Philly in a lot of ways where you can be on, you know, like 115th Street and get one vibe. And then you can be up on 117th, which is only two blocks away and get a completely different vibe. And I think that, my you know, you have you have these core areas that have a cachet. So they're the old, the old mainstays, Mount Morris Park, uh, Strivers Row, Hamilton Heights. And Beautiful. then more recently, the um, Manhattanville area, which is Frederick Douglass, Manhattan Avenue, um, Morningside. That's, That's a more recent thing with the rezoning that allowed all these restaurants to come in and some of the Soha 118 and those types of condos. So those are those are hot for a certain er- reason because they have cachet. You know, further uptown might be hot because someone doesn't want to pay fifteen hundred dollars a square foot. Right. So they might want to be able to pay eight hundred to a thousand dollars a square foot. So for them, the one forties might be hot because oh wow, this is my last chance to cut, to get in here and be able to afford this. Exactly, and and I think it's um we always talk about neighborhoods and the city changing over the years, and I think nothing's truer than the area you just said because I live along Morningside Park, and Morningside Park used to be not dangerous but a little sketchy. It was Yeah, I mean, and I, I love when I talk to my family about where I live because I'll, you know, I go through Morningside Park at night, almost every night. Um, and my family will be like, that's not safe. And, and I mean, for everyone out there, you probably shouldn't do that. But I <laughs> never feel unsafe. I actually find that it's become so built up both residentially and starting commercially that it's just ever changing, just like every other part of the city. And so I'll talk about your, your development. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll use the park to segue into it because one of the things that I point out to people who haven't lived there for so long, if you're a runner and there are a lot of runners in New York, you can run from 155th Street to Central Park with very few traffic lights. You have Jackie Robinson Park, which is where my new condo is, then you cut over to St. Nicholas Park, and then you cut over to Morningside Park, and then you cut over to Central Park, and you maybe cross six or seven traffic lights. Very interesting. And it's fabulous for runners. So I'm always over there at Morningside, which is beautiful. And it's a really good new development tour. Yeah. (laughs) So our our, uh, new project, as good as Black History Month, is uh, named after James Baldwin. So it's called Baldwin Park. It's on uh, 148th Street between uh, Frederick Douglass and Bradhurst. So it's right below Sugar Hill. And uh, it's sort of in the area where the... the, Polo Ground Stadium was many, many generations ago. It's uh, only six units, a boutique condo. It's uh, being built by a local Harlem developer, Alexis Maswin, who lives lives in the neighborhood. And uh, we're under construction now. Uh, construction crew thinks uh, that we're on schedule to be ready for closings in July. Of this um, year? Yeah, July of this year. The and blended uh, price per square foot? We have uh, in the 900s. Nice. So we've got uh, five two-bedrooms. Um all but one have outdoor space. And then we've got a three-bedroom duplex on the bottom that has an enormous backyard, really, really big. So um, they're going to have nine-foot ceilings, wide plank oak floors, uh, LG appliances, uh, keyed, keyed entrances, um, forced air. You won't have any P-tax or mechanicals under your Thank windows. The, the windows are beautiful. The architect did a really good job. So were they available to purchase today? Are you selling? Yeah, we are on right the market. Today? We're selling from uh, floor plans now. We're not ready for hard hat tours yet, but I expect in March we will be. So the 
easiest place to find it. It's 306 West 148th Street. It's easy to find it on Street Easy or on CORE's website. Um, the building website will be up pretty soon. Under Sid Whalen at corenyc.com. We're going to break. We're coming back right after these messages. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. In Manhattan real estate, no deal is ever the same. Different clients have different needs. What always comes back to me, though, the number one compliment that I receive is honesty. And really, this is what matters the most to me. They feel that I'm their number one advocate. Without honesty, I don't see how you can be successful in this business. I'm Heather McDonough with CORE, and this is what I do. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back with Sid Whalen, Parul Rumbat, Matthew Cohen, Phil Horrigan, Deborah Hoffman, and our guest today, Randy Plevy. So, moving right along with a flood of new buildings opening and a cooling rental market concessions, the offer of a free month's rent, for example, wave broker fee, and the like have been more prevalent of late. As we head deeper into the winter season, which is always slow for rentals, the trend has gotten so dramatic that the rental market may be at a breaking point. City Habitats recently released its November rental market reports uh, last week with data showing that 27% of new lease signed in Manhattan last month included some form of a concession, while the vacancy rate is at 2.11%, its highest point in seven years. All of which points to the fact that an increasing number of landlords are having to offer concessions to entice renters, while others simply aren't finding tenants willing to pay their asking price. So, MrLeaseBreak.com, I ask you, why won't landlords just lower prices? I mean, instead of all these concessions, just lower prices. Well, some are definitely lowering prices. There's no question about it. Um, There's a few things going on, I think. Um, First of all, there are the landlords out there that want to keep the rent roll high. Uh, for a various number of reasons. They want to be able to show their bankers, their lenders, that kind of thing. Also, some landlords feel like, and they've been through this before, and they know that things could snap back pretty quickly. So they don't want to necessarily give the lower rent to the tenant. They'd rather keep the rent high, give a concession, and hopefully a year from now, the market 
you know, is very positive. So that's that's one of the reasons. I know the chances are you might not want to move next year. So if you're yes. at, right. if you're yes. at fifty nine hundred this year with a two month concession, then next year you're at fifty nine hundred with no concession. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And uh, and there are a lot of landlords, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing this now too, because I have a lot of clients that are renegotiating their current lease. They're aware of the market, and landlords are being somewhat smart about this. They're at, they may ask for increases. I always suggest people push back on their landlord, and they are pushing back in some cases, and they are getting either, mm, I haven't seen too many rent decreases, but a lot of landlords are keeping the rents the same. So that's also positive. Um, And those apartments that are coming down, the landlords that do understand the market and are lowering prices are seeing the apartments get rented. The market in the last few weeks, volume-wise, has been very good. We've had stuff sitting on the market for like in December, November, and then all of a sudden, a big traffic surge uh, the first few weeks of That's the year. That's what I was seeing, because yeah. I had a, a one-bedroom rental client in Harlem, and it, everything we looked at was heavy, heavy activity. Yeah. You know? yeah. But Sid, if you remember correctly, you know, back in the day when we were both selling new developments, you know, around the financial meltdown time, you know, what Phil said is pretty, is actually accurate. I remember our developers didn't want to lower the purchase prices on their units, but they would give concessions on the back end. It was important for them and probably their bankers or their backers to keep those purchase prices at a certain level so they can say, I sold this one bedroom for a million one or a million mm-hmm. two, but yet really I sold it for 900000 because I gave them some concessions on the back end, like transfer taxes and well, blah, blah. And but the overall look and feel of that sellout was pretty robust. And that experience that you brought up, you know, I was selling the, the Kalahari condominium on West 116th Street in that time. And that taught me one of the most <laughs> important lessons of this pricing and price drop question, because we took it over. I was in a different company and we'd taken it over from another company. Mm-hmm. What the previous company done had had done price increases that were you know, even without the financial crisis, the price increases made no sense. So it looked like a price drop when we put the prices back to where they were supposed to be, but it wasn't. It was simply correcting an error in pricing. So you have both of these things. There are real price drops. If the apartment rented for 5900 in 2016 and now it's renting for 56 that is a real price drop. Mm-hmm. If it rented for 56 in 2016 and they increased it to 5900 and now we're renting it for 556 again, that is not a price drop. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a numbers game. And when people are looking at Street Easy, when, when customers, clients are looking at Street Easy, they don't know how to read for that. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why we still have our job because we know how to look at that information. Right. But it's very important to know if there was an unwarranted increase before mm-hmm. you start talking about As I've always drops. said, pricing in this town is an art. And, you know, it absolutely is. Moving on, millennials. Mr. Matthew Cohen, (laughs) uh, have made social media bigger than it ever was before. They were the first generation to rely on social media. You will almost always see a millennial, never see a millennial without their phone in their hand or sitting on a table in front of them. Well, I'm not a millennial, and mine is still glued (laughs) to my hand. As a result, social media is now bigger than ever, not only for social purposes, but for business as well and in politics recently. Social media marketing has in it has in and of itself become one of the most influential ways to promote virtually any business product or service. Social media is not dying anytime soon, and the next generation will rely on this probably more so than the current millennials. So, you know, obviously, um, we are all addicted to our uh, devices. How has social media if it has affected the real estate market in in all of your businesses. I know it has affected mine greatly. I actually, so uh, I'm the worst millennial to talk to about this because 
constantly in the last few weeks, just everyone posts about Trump on Facebook. And I basically have not checked Facebook anymore because I just can't like I, I just, I'm tired of it. But having said that, um, this connects with a really good point I wanted to make earlier, which is semi-serious, semi-funny. Um, living in Harlem and doing a lot of business up there and just like I'm sure Sid can, uh, you know, attest to. I find that, you know, New Yorkers have great stories about living in New York. And I would like to say that I think if you want even better stories, you should move uptown because um, it's very funny. So during the Super Bowl, um, I had not not one, but four clients of mine reach out to me and say, wait, Renee Goldsberry just sang the Star Spangled Banner. And didn't you tell me a story about how you live around the corner from her and you're constantly seeing her on the subway. And for those of you out there who don't know who she is, she was one of the stars of Hamilton, the original cast. She was also on the good wife. She's amazing and beautiful and has every attribute I think is fantastic. Um, and it just, it started up real estate talk. So it started from a text that was a funny story about Harlem to then real estate talk of them. One of them actually said, Oh my God, by the way, one of my friends is looking to buy. And now I'm talking to their friend about going out this weekend. But and I'm, a properties. Huge, I'm a huge jazz so, fan. And, and I've had this experience so many times of people like stepping out of my record collection into my open house, basically. I love it. It's great. And how, <laughs> and how social media co- coincides with this is that I was, um, I was doing a silly Snapchatty Instagram thing that they now have about the Super Bowl and where I was watching it. And, and I guess I taped right when Renee was singing the Star Spangled Banner. And um, that's when I got texts. So social media, there is there something is. to be yeah, said absolutely. about putting or you your... you post an interesting picture exactly. or whatever, but before you know it, somebody sends it to somebody else and then you get business out of it all the time. Yeah, but I never addition, thought I would say this, but it has. And it takes time, I think, individually, but it is absolutely working for me like all of a sudden out of nowhere. But in addition, as Vince, you just said, you and I are not millennials, yet we are so glued to this. So much so that I had a broker from Queens put an offer for a client on a property of mine on Sunday, and he has not returned any of my phone calls, texts, or um, emails, and being so socially media conscious is, where are you? (laughs) And we have other offers on, and I told him this, but we get a little snobby about it if we are very into, exactly, high expectations of other brokers thinking, well, they're all going to work like I do. Well, everything is immediate. That's one thing that texting and and email and even social media has brought to the surface. Everything is immediate, and when you don't get an immediate response, regardless of what it is, you go into a panic. And you know what, the market market that we're in… And the market that we're going into, I think we all believe, is especially interesting for this fact because we always talk about how what we do is we set expectations for people. But I actually believe that so much of the real estate world in New York is about perception and intrigue. And I think that a lot of smart, especially developers these days are, and Pearl, I've seen 196 Orchard ads, you know, there, when you're on Instagram now, they add in these little advertisements about who knows what. And I actually ran into two ads over the last few weeks for new developments in the city. That is so smart because you know what? Maybe it won't result to an actual sale, but it gets people talking and, and it gets people wanting to maybe see it. I had a client who reached out to me about a Facebook ad for a new development on the Upper East Side. And she was like, have we looked at this? 
I've That's seen, so I've seen developments on yeah. Facebook that I wasn't All even aware of out of my broker system because I'm not necessarily looking, but I see something that an agent friend of mine or, or whatever is posting, and I think, oh, how did I miss that one? Yeah, and you know, we're and also, I'm sure consumers too. We're also seeing millennials push other forms of technology. So now we have a lot more acceptance in the field for DocuSign and EchoSign in terms of signing contracts. We don't need wet signatures anymore as oh. long as the contract says PDFs or digital signatures are acceptable. Are acceptable. Yeah, yeah, and we're seeing some closings happening by mail, mm-hmm. particularly out of town closings, mm-hmm. New Yorkers buying properties out of town. Those closings often take place through the mail with with a title company handling everything. Amazing. Yeah, so we're, mm-hmm. we're millennials are pushing on that end as well. There you go. Yeah, and I mean, one of my millennial clients closed on a place in Tribeca last week, and to your point, at the end of it, he said to me, I've heard so much from people that the New York City real estate world is in the olden ages and how everything is just done via thousands of paperwork. And that is true Some, you know, most of the time with co-ops especially. But he said to me, this was so seamless between you being great, you know, not to, not to you know, talk myself up, but, but between you being great, between the attorney so seamlessly, seamlessly electronically making everything so accessible, um, I, I couldn't even imagine this in a different time. So to your point, I think that's very true. All right, we got to leave it there. That's our show for this week. Oh. Thanks to my panel. Thanks to Randy Plevy for joining us today. You can catch the show anytime on podcast or on our website, voiceamerica.com or at vincerocco.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining us and have a great day. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.